You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Secret of Nim edition. And the days of me coming up with creative things for my little edition gimmick have really died. They might return. <laughs> you never know. You never, you never know. know. Couldn't say. Hey, folks, who am I that has given up all creativity and joy in podcasting? It's Nathan, your humble and obedient host. We've got the preacher who's a teacher of cinema right there. I Be- know. Benjamin <laughs> A Frenchman. He is eating his baguette. He is smoking his cigarette with holding it from underneath. And uh, I don't know what oui, else. Oui, monsieur. Oui, oui, monsieur. He's leaning on the Eiffel Tower. Leaning very far. Says <laughs> <laughs> <Just> leaning. <laughs> Playing his accordion. <laughs> <laughs> and wearing a stripy shirt, if I didn't say that. Hey, he's not really French. And now he's miming. Now Ben's become a mime. It's a great moment in podcasting. How many podcasts have you ever tuned into? In fact, let's. You want to hear Ben mime? Here we go. Now, the fun thing, folks, <laughs> is that in order for the joke to work for you, the audience, Ben didn't have to do anything. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> just for me, <laughs> he was trapped in a box. And then I don't know what. Did it fill up with water? It, or something? it was shrinking. It was shrinking. It was okay. going to crush me. It'd be horrible. Well, listen, speaking of things that are horrible, the later half of Don Bluth's career, or two-thirds, <laughs> he made some stinkeroos. Oh, boy. Pebble and the Penguin, a troll in Central Park. I have the, the pleasure of not seeing these Thumbelina. Movies. We've talked about Don Bluth before, mm-hmm. but we want to talk about Secret of Nim because we're doing a thing we're calling Beyond the Wardrobe over on the Sound of Sanity podcast right now. And Ben, what's that all about? It's all about children's fantasy literature, Nathan. Stuff that we recommend, that we like, that we wanted to go back and read and talk about. And so we talked about the book, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. One of my favorites. One of your favorites. Yeah. And maybe in like 30 seconds, you could tell us about that book and Robert O'Brien, the author. Oh, yeah. Robert C. O'Brien. He wrote only three children's novels and Secret of Nim is the best of them. Easily. Actually, no, that's right. That's right. Three children's novels. You could say two. Anyway, whatever. Secret of Nim is the best. And it's Secret of Nim. Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. It's about a mouse named Mrs. Frisbee mm-hmm. who needs help from these strange rats to save the life of her son, Timothy, because their home is going to get plowed under and her son is sick and can't move. And anyway, it's a whole thing. And it's just a very sort of naturalistic, steady book about Mrs. Frisbee making all of these sort of courageous decisions in a very ordinary way with a lot of really cool description of the woods and the danger of life in the woods and the field and the way that the different animals interact and relate. And it's just very gripping, very interesting. The story of the rats is weird, and the book has just just cast kind of a spell on you. Mm -hmm. And I read it over and over as a kid, and... I liked the sense of urgency and dread and melancholy that it brings. And I liked this movie too. Although this movie, while it does do some of the same things, is a different kettle of fish. Yes, it only captures some of those qualities that, or some percentage of mm-hmm. each of those qualities. Yeah. You just mentioned it has, it has its own melancholy and its own danger and its yeah. own. It's much less interested than Robert C. O'Brien is in the actual natural world and mm-hmm. the 
way that animals work. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's not he's not doing like white fang or something like that. No, the, the animals no, no. are anthropomorphized. They're a decent talking amount, and thinking, and maybe even using satchels or wearing clothes. In yeah. some, to some degree, but. Right. He is just much more interested in what does an owl do? What does a and, and in the sort of whole existential dilemma of nature, red in tooth and claw, and all, right. all that sort of thing, which mm-hmm. this movie has a flavor of, but it does. It doesn't. It, it it wants to Disney it up. Not that it is a Disney movie, which we'll talk about it. But Don Bluth definitely sees himself in the lineage of Disney, so he wants to include things like explicit magic. Mm-hmm. And a little bit more of a direct hero's journey and more mm-hmm. comedy, more Disney-esque sort of comedy. With That's right. Good old Dom DeLuise playing good old Jeremy, the good old crow or raven or mm-hmm. whatever crow. Yeah. crow. Yep. So, by the way, I forgot to hit any buttons. So I should hit, I guess I'll hit the baggage button because you kind of gave your baggage and you, uh, could, you could yeah. continue to give it. So oh, It doesn't matter. It. It's in the past. <laughs> Yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past can't hurt. I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. That little sound effect indicates that we're supposed to give our baggage. What you already sort of said, but what baggage do you bring to this book or to this movie? Read the book it's based on many a time. Saw this movie, I think, many a time. I don't think I saw it as much as I read the book, but who knows? It's hard to say. I saw it a number of times. Was always a fan, and I think I, to some extent, I enjoyed it for different reasons than the book because this movie ends with like a sword fight and magic, mm-hmm. and a really fun, <laughs> violent climax, violent adventure style action adventure climax that the book most definitely does not have. Yes, man, the book and the movie just scratch different itches. So I loved, I loved this movie for that reason. I mean, the animation is among let me just see if i want to say this it's the animation is awesome mm-hmm. in this movie great it's my favorite don bluth animation yes and i think i would agree with that I, it's just it's great it's it's the it's some of the moodiest and atmospheric stuff i had ever seen in an animated movie at the time i think until you hit anime i don't know if there's anything quite like this actually mm-hmm. because disney just was sleeping beauty Sleeping Beauty, certain sections of certain Disney movies. But That's in, right. In, term, in terms of sustaining a mood, this yeah. movie is much more interested in that. Than, yeah. Than like, like, like for example, the the original Disney movie, 1937, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, has that section where she's running through the woods and it's very yes. fearsome and very scary. But then it all turns out to be cuddly creatures and soon we're into bumbling dwarf comedy. And this movie has a little bit of bumbling comedy with Jeremy, but it's overall a little bit more sober, a little bit more serious, a little bit more melancholy. Yeah, I think, well, yeah, the one thing that this movie shares with the book is, boy, you live in a menacing world, Field Mouse, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of menacing and bad things that could happen and a lot of creatures that you should be afraid of in your life. You might find your life hanging by a thread at any moment. Yes. And I just like that as a kid. I like the intensity of that stuff. It's probably one of the reasons I also resonated with Return to Oz, which we talked about in an earlier podcast. And it's it's sort of darkness. Although the Return to Oz is also a different kind of thing. Right. But they're both, I liked, I guess I liked the darker kids' fair. So that's my history with this movie. Well, I, I don't want to say anything about like Thumbelina or anything like that because those movies all really just stink. But mm-hmm. in his three... Uh, shall we say masterpieces and his three mm-hmm. minor masterpieces secret of nim 
American Tale and Land Before Time, Bluth. He has a way with menace and with a, a very frantic sense of danger. Yes. Like when the cat attacks Mrs. Brisby as she is in the in the movie. In this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very similar actually to the cat attack in American Tale and very similar to Sharp Tooth in the Land Before Time in that it is just ferocious and you are doing everything you can to scramble away from the danger as quickly as possible while it is within one hair of chomping you into two pieces. And he's likes to include sequences like that. And this movie has a number of them actually, where it's just like, wow, this is some pretty hardcore stuff for a kid's movie and the sword fight, probably the best sword fight. I I can't say through animation because obviously anime and lots of things like that have great sword fights. Mm -hmm. But in terms of a classic American studio children's yeah. film anime, like Disney's animated classics line never had a sword fight that came this, anywhere close to this. Sleeping Beauty would be the closest, right? Sleeping Beauty, the fight with the dragons, great. But I wouldn't say it's as good just in terms of a sword fight mm-hmm. as this is. Mm-hmm. And then the only other thing that even comes close is um, the Beast versus Gaston, Dawn of Justice. That's more about stalking each other through a gothic castle sort of thing in the rain than it is about actual combat. So, yeah, good stuff. Well, my baggage is that I like this movie. I've seen it. I mean, I certainly, I didn't really grow up with it. I grew up with American Tale. Mm-hmm. And I grew up with Land Before Time. And mm-hmm. I, for whatever reason, I've seen a lot of the other dumb Don Bluth movies like Pebble and the Penguin, which are just tripe. <laughs> just absolute tripe. And all dogs go to heaven. All dogs go to heaven. Oh, hot garbage. Kind of bothered so me as a awful. kid like it's actually doing like a story that's all set around the afterlife and heaven and hell and kind of taking its mythology of those things kind of seriously it, uh, yeah it's it, gross yeah it's just weird bugs bunny would go to hell every once in a while like you saw that kind of thing and that in and of itself could be its own kind of bothersome as a kid and even as maybe in a different way as an adult but you you knew you weren't supposed to take it all that seriously but but to Don Bluth is just the master of ill-conceived ideas. Like he is, yeah. I, I want to say he's actually just not that great. Like I think yeah. he got lucky a couple times, and Nim is one of those times. Uh-huh. I think he did one. He had one Nim in him, which even there, I'm not sure his instincts are actually mm-hmm. that great. Yeah, we'll talk about that. And then he did two with Spielberg, where Spielberg had some good instincts, and maybe and maybe the collaboration was good, and Bluth brought things to it. But then you just have Pebble and the Penguin. Thumbelina. It's just like these things where it's just like, who thought a kid would like this? Like kids don't like this. This is boring and stupid and concerned with things that kids aren't concerned with. Well, let me give some context on Mr. Bluth before we dive into The Secret of Nim. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. You may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. So I gave some of this context back in our American Tale episode. But I'm just going to take us through a chunk of it again, the chunk that gets us to Nim. So the way to understand Bluth is that, as, as I think I said in this that episode, is he's the Tesla to Disney Company's Edison and that he's the direction that things could have gone. He, he represented a, a path not taken. He represented someone who the Disney Corporation tried to hire right before they had their renaissance. And maybe thankfully they didn't. And then they had their renaissance with Little Mermaid and Mm -hmm. Beauty and the Beast in the late 80s and early 90s. Mm -hmm. But he was one of those guys. Which uh, I guess our Batman episode won't have come out when this comes out. But in our Batman episode, we talk about Tim Burton as being another one of these guys who grew up with classic 
Disney Animation and then actually joined Disney and Disney didn't have a good, like the, the nine old men, the guys that were responsible for a lot of Disney's great animation and a lot of Disney's success were getting older and dying and Disney did not have a clear vision for the future or for mentorship or for passing the baton. And so you had a lot of young, hungry guys who liked the early classics of animation and wanted to keep doing stuff that was that spoke to them, that was dark, that was primal, that that had some real teeth to it, some real storytelling juice to it. And, and they just Disney was making busy making mistakes, <laughs> making Aristocats and mm-hmm. Oliver and company and, and stuff that has its charms, but just was not at all what mm-hmm. these why you don't go into animation because you're excited to make Oliver and company. You go into it because you're excited to make Snow White or Dumbo or something mm-hmm. like you know, something that tells a real story. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Don Bluth was born in 1937, came out the same year that Snow White did. And he began to draw every day. Don Bluth is all he really has left at this point is his legacy. He's still with us and he's probably not going to make another movie. And so he kind of has to dine out on the three or four movies that people actually like. He made a lot of bad movies and movies that yeah. aren't well loved or well remembered, but he also yeah, he, made Anastasia is. Yeah. Well people, liked. I don't know that it has like a huge fan base, but people liked it fine when it came out and it uh-huh. had, there's people that remember it fondly. It's not like a beloved classic. It's B tier. I'd say not A tier. Uh-huh. But in any case, Don Bluth really likes to, to this day, sort of sell himself as this magical sort of elfin figure that was just gifted with art and with animation and stuff. So he said he saw Snow White. I don't know how he saw Snow White when he was zero years old, but he must have seen it in a release (laughs) or he just likes to tell the story. So in any case, he was inspired by Snow White to draw every day. If, If he goes 24 hours without drawing something to this day, Ben, he... He feels all crazy and cramped up inside, and he's just got to draw. <laughs> he, he grew up in El Paso, Texas, and then later in Payson, Utah. The Utah part of that is important because his great-grandfather was Helaman Pratt, an early leader of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and one of the founders of Prattville, Utah, which is a hub for them. If people know Mitt Romney, the one-time Republican presidential candidate, They are second cousins, and Romney is, of course, Mormon. Bluth went to Brigham Young University in Utah for a year, continued to pursue his art, and then in 1955, he was hired by Walt Disney as an assistant for Sleeping Beauty, Hmm. which was released in 1959. So Bluth got to work on Sleeping Beauty for a couple of years, but he was just an assistant, and he found it kind of boring. And I don't know, it's interesting because it actually is a great movie and a great classic and the thing that kind of comes the closest to mm-hmm. what Bluth wanted. But for whatever reason, he wasn't satisfied working on it back in his, those days. And so he left Disney in 1957. And he does take his religion seriously. He is a committed Mormon. And he was back then, too. And so he actually spent two and a half years in Argentina after he left Disney on a mission for the church. and. He asked God, apparently, like, if I go on this mission, can I be sure when I come back I can pick off up where I left off? But God did not answer him. So he did not know whether he would be able to pick up his art, but he knew he had to go to Argentina and be a missionary. So, <sighs> of course, people didn't speak a lot of Spanish in Argentina. And so the way he helped connect people was he would draw pictures. I'm using a somewhat mocking tone 
not because I necessarily disbelieve any of these stories, but just because he likes his own legend and he, he, everything he tells, all the stories he tells him about himself are kind of this way as if he had this magical gift. And he, mm. so yeah, in any case, he did some mission work and then got back into art, did some commercial art, returned to Disney in 1971, which Disney in 1971 is kind of the, I never know how to say this word, nadir, nadir, N-A-D-I-R. How do you pronounce that word? It's one of those words I read all the time, but I don't know how to pronounce it. Nadir, I guess. I never know how to pronounce it either. Mm, uh, I bet dictionary can help. I bet it will. We're we're taking time out for this. Nadir. Nadir. Or Nadir. Nadir, okay. I prefer Nadir, so I'm going to go with Nadir. So, he returns to, the, to Disney in 1971, and that is kind of the nadir of of Disney, thereabouts. This is like a few years after Walt died, and so they really haven't got their act together. And they're releasing things that have their fans, and maybe some of their fans are in this room. I, I'm certainly married to some of their fans, but uh, like Robin Hood, everybody loves Robin Hood. I think it's pretty cheap and lame, the one with the foxes and stuff. Winnie the Pooh, The Rescuers, Pete's Dragon. This is kind of lame. Poorly animated. Like, The Rescuers has this title sequence where they don't animate anything. It's just still shots, like drawings, paintings, whatever. And it's just it just feels cheap. And so Bluth, like many young men, like Tim Burton, like others, like John Lasseter, grew up idolizing Disney, thinking that Walt Disney himself and Walt Disney the company was just the greatest of storytellers mm-hmm. and moral and strong and dark and interesting and fun. And it just seemed like they were just trying to make money when these guys actually got into the system. They did not like what they found and nor should they have because Disney was just trying to make money and they didn't have a strong artistic vision at that time. It was a dark period. There was a lot of cost cutting they had lost their way in terms of making stories that actually connected to these classical archetypical themes that that uh-huh. Walt Disney actually had back in the day. Like I said, the nine old men were starting to retire. There was no sort of mentorship program. And so Bluth and his future business partner, Gary Goldman, who is kind of the, the dude in the background that's worked on all of these things from NIM to Anastasia to Titan AE. I think Titan AE was the thing that finally just drew, drove Bluth out of the business. They finally yeah. stopped putting <laughs> chips on this guy's hand. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> anyway, he and like 17 Disney employees get together in Bluth's garage and start working on something called Banjo, the Woodpile Cat. And they're trying to figure out what makes a Disney cartoon a Disney cartoon. What are the secrets of how to do that kind of great animation? And Bluth ends up leading kind of a mini not revolt or coup, but what's it called when you all exit at the same time? Um, <sighs> like there's a word for this. An exodus. Uh, yeah, an exodus. Yeah, he, le- he leads a little exodus and gets a bunch of former Disney animators who are all frustrated with Disney. And they found Don Bluth Studios. And they actually, uh, hilariously enough, because it's such a lame movie, they delay Fox and the Hound by leaving they're just like bye guys and then disney's like wait we can't make fox and the hound anymore and they're like okay who cares and i think tim burton was also a failed animator on fox and the hound That's right. like yeah. every everybody hated fox and having to work on fox and the hound and i don't know that i blame them so bluth gets together like 160 animators and does this profit sharing contract this this very sort of noble idea where they're all gonna share in the 
profit of Secret of Nim, and they make Secret of Nim, and they do it in direct sort of opposition to what Disney has become. And basically, the company would have folded after that because Nim was not a huge success. Um, Nim came out in 1982. It opened the opening weekend of a movie. You may remember us talking about all this stuff on our American Tale episode, but if our listeners don't remember, mm-hmm. it opened against a little movie about an alien that rides spike across the moon. And um, Mac and me. Mac and me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> about a boy that's stuck in a wheelchair and it goes humorously off a cliff. No, no, no. This opened against E.T. And of course, E.T. mopped the floor with it. MGM also lost confidence in it and really didn't give it a marketing campaign. And it was just mishandled. I think it actually would have been a moderate success if like like it did well in the theaters where it was actually pushed. But it just wasn't it didn't it basically didn't get a large release and so this movie uh, did okay it was a moderate success but became more of a blues company wasn't going to survive and really what it did was get gave him the calling card that got him a meeting with spielberg which got american tail and helped him survive in the industry but if spielberg wasn't interested in him then this movie just would have been the end of don blue's career because it didn't do that well it, it huh. became more of a you got to remember home video is only just hitting in the eighties. And so this became more of, this is one of those, one of the first movies that kind of became a a minor hit on home video. And in terms of the making of the movie itself, there's not a lot to say. Bluth obviously saw himself in the, the classic Disney lineage, wanted to make something Mm. that was more scary and more, all the things we've been talking about more archetypal Chose kind of an interesting book to do that because I don't know that the the book actually necessarily jives with all those concerns. Like, no, I don't um, think so. Booth's doing comedy in the Disney style with Jeremy, which doesn't really jive with the book. He's nope. also adding magic, a, a very potent magical element to the uh, story. Mm-hmm. Um, famously, they, I forget whether they reached out. I don't know. Yeah, this is what it was. They reached out to Whammo who manufacture Frisbees and said, hey, we're going to make a movie called Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. And they were like, don't do that. We will sue you. We're not going to waive our rights to Frisbees. And so they had, they changed the char- lead character's name to Frisbee and changed the name of the movie to The Secret of Nim, which is arguably a cooler name, I would say, than Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Uh-huh. But apparently they had to edit. Like John Carradine had already recorded his lines for the great owl and and they could not get him back so they had to literally like snip things snip little syllables and sounds around <laughs> which is kind of fun yeah this movie doesn't have like a big cast that's really worth talking about i don't think huh. this is the first team up uh, of dom DeLuise and don bluth don bluth and ah the, the great duo the great duo yes he found his de niro or his man dom DeLuise is always a canker sore in the ankle of any Don Bluth movie, I would say. I, I'm <laughs> not, a, not a fan. You don't like Tiger, uh, yeah. Tiger the Cat. <laughs> don't like Tiger the Cat. I don't like Jeremy the Raven uh, or whatever he is, the crow. I just don't think he's, I don't know. D- Dom DeLuise, he is funny. I did like Tiger the Cat when I was a small child and every child, small uh-huh. child, I suppose, does because he's big and he's lovable and he's goofy and he's slapstick and he's silly. But a little bit like the lion, the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz, who I also thought was pretty cool. But 
<laughs> the only other actor kind of of note is Derek, Derek Jacobi, you may know. Oh, yeah. The great Derek Jacobi, the sort of royal British theater actor who, eh, where do people, people he, he, he always, he was Kenneth Branagh's mentor. So he shows up in a lot of Branagh's films. If you've ever, dear listener, seen Kenneth Branagh's quite well done, I think, version of Hamlet. Jacobi plays Claudius in that. And for my money, he's the best Claudius I've seen on film. Really great. Plays Claudius as kind of a more able statesman, like, okay, this guy actually makes a plausible king. He's, he's not just a schemer that assassinated the old king, not just a villain. He's like, mm-hmm. this, this guy's plausible. But I don't know, where else would people know uh, Derek? He's one of those guys who shows up in a lot of things. Yeah. But it's hard to tell you what. Any number of Shakespeare thingamajigs. Anytime you, you need someone to intone things ponderously, like he's a senator and gladiator, you know, and he, yeah. he gets some line about democracy has died in the sands of the Colosseum. Like he's the guy that you bring uh-huh. in to just give a little dignity to tripe like that. You Well, so if you've ever seen the PBS show Catfile mm-hmm. based on the detective series about the monk, Derek Jacobi is Catfile. He's a monk. He's a lot of fun. He's, yes. he's really fun to watch. Yes, he's also quite famous for playing Claudius in the uh, miniseries I, Claudius, which is another thing from the, the same era. Huh. So, but, you know, he's been in The Crown. He's, I'm just looking at his, he, lots of Branagh stuff. It's likely you've seen him. If yeah, you if, if you look him up and see his face, you'll be like, oh, I've seen that, that guy, guy a million yeah, times. Derek Jacoby. Uh, so anyway, he plays Nicodemus and I don't know that there's that much more, like, like I said, Don Bluth was really wanted there to be magic just to sort of have that old school Disney, more spiritual feel and less sort of whatever you'd say about the book. And so they added a magical element to it. And um, yeah, I think that's all there is to say about the making of this film. Uh, The critics liked it. Okay. The audiences that got to see it tended to like, it feels like if it had a real marketing machine and a studio that believes in it, it could have done pretty well Mm -hmm. but it was only kind of a cult hit because it did not have those things it it is popular enough that it has in 1998 it spawned a direct-to-video sequel called the secret of nim 2 timothy to the rescue isn't it is it timmy oh yeah sorry timmy to the rescue which was made without bluth's input Uh, and then there was also i guess no I'm just glancing at Wikipedia to make sure I haven't forgotten anything. And there was a live action sort of computer animated remake that was reported in 2015, but nothing seems to have come of it. Yeah, I think that, ooh, it looks like the Russo brothers were announced to be executive producers on the remake. So Mm. we'll have their fine storytelling sense. So anyway, that is... Don Bluth, I mean, I guess I could, you can listen to our American tale to hear the full story of what happened to Don Bluth after that. Basically, he hooked up with Spielberg, made two kind of minor classics in American Tale and Land Before Time, and then was just given carte blanche to make a bunch of really terrible, terrible things, (laughs) as I've said several times now. As I think I said in that episode, the guy does not seem to have a good sense of what would actually be interesting for kids. Like for a guy that wants to truck an old school kind of Disney archetypal storytelling, his stories, even his classics are so full of weird adult, like American tales we talked about. It's like about political grift and Tammany Hall and like all this stuff that's just so over the heads of its intended audience. And then it has probably thanks to Spielberg, a really 
well-constructed central archetypal story of a child that's lost and wants to get back to his parents. But once Bluth divorces from Spielberg, he doesn't have that grounding. And Uh so it's just like Thumbelina deals with sort of the politics of the frog prince wanting to have. It's a very bizarre mixture of that kind of thing. Like, yeah, pop weird politics, matrimony, Thumbelina stuff, which is gross and boring, but also stuff straight from the id. Right. Like, just like, why did, I didn't want you to animate that. I didn't want to see that. I didn't want that in my brain or my kid's brain, especially. Yeah, it's kind of like he feels the need to have a giant spider menace Mrs. Brisby right before the owl crushes it. Indigo. Indigo, or when Fievel falls into a sewer grate and suddenly has like these insects. It's stuff like that that, or the waves turning into kind of a demon creature in American Tale. Those movies are more well-anchored, but he's always got this. It's like he understands, he either just has a dark sensibility or he understands that these kinds of things, as they were done by Disney in the mm-hmm. 40s, are supposed to have kind of real menace and real evil. And so he tries to include this element, and yet mm-hmm. he, doesn't, he doesn't actually have a sense of how to anchor it in the story, like in mm-hmm. a way that makes sense like right even something as simple as jafar in aladdin is like okay we understand this he's an evil sorcerer he's got some demonic sorcerer powers and he wants more power like you spend two seconds with that guy you know who he is and Mm -hmm. what his deal is and why he would be working against aladdin and why aladdin needs to defeat him and it's just simple Mm -hmm. done that sort of simplicity and storytelling that sort of archetypal stuff constantly eludes Don Bluth. Yes. Um, his villains are like, even in his good movies, it's like, well, it's a cat that's dressed up as a rat that's grifting the town's folks. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I mean, it's I, pretty funny. I, I think I joked in our American Tale episode that if he had taken over Disney, which Disney reached out to him at a certain point and said, hey, you want to help us get our animation on track? And it's fun to sort of think of an alternate universe where he had, but he turned them down and then the Disney Renaissance. But I think I joked in that episode that if he had done Beauty and the Beast, you know, the Beauty and the Beast would have teamed up to reform French tax law or something like that. <laughs> and, and then there'd be an evil monster that they'd have to fight. Like, right. like that's about the level of his sensibilities. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's like he learned that in order, you, you want to appeal to both adults and kids. He has that in his head, but then he's like, borderline autistic in the way that he implements it instead of having finding things that are primal that concern all of us that both adults and kids would be interested in he has like this part for kids (laughs) this part for adults and he tries to mash them up anyway he's a weird guy his last movie was titan ae in the year 2000 which i'm kind of interested in seeing now for whatever reason whatever silly reason i mean waste my time on it it would be interesting that was an interesting movie because like it was right before cgi just sort of swept away any conception mm-hmm. of 2D animation. And it comes out around the same time as like Treasure Planet, like, mm-hmm. like a bunch of attempts by Disney and by others to do animation that teenagers and specifically teenage boys would be interested in. And the teenage boys just were not having it, no matter how sort of cool and how many laser guns and how many yep. babes and stuff you put into these movies. Like, a teenage boy is just not going to go out on a Friday night and spend 10 bucks to buy a ticket to... Well, the problem is it's still doing a Disney modeling kind of thing. And if, right. if teenage boys want to see that stuff, it's too late because anime has started to break in. And once you've seen anime, you go and look at these efforts, you're like, no, nah, you're way behind. And action, 
in giving in setting a mood. Like you don't, you just anime is way ahead of you. Yeah, you can invent the level of violence that we want to see. Anime is going to be as grotesquely violent as you please. You couldn't cal. You're, you're right. You couldn't calibrate it more poorly because if if what you want is darkness and violence and action and stuff and you go to sex anime, for and that sex, matter you go to anime Man. It, which was was hitting really big adult swim had just around this that same time in the year 2000 introduced you know cowboy bebop and stuff like that and so that's where you go and if what you want is something to see with your girlfriend that's cuddly and sweet then you're going to go to the actual Disney movie or the actual Pixar movie as or a rom-com or for a rom-com that matter. But if you're going to do animation, you're actually going to go all the way back into sort of sweet, kitty, romantic, fun, colorful animation because that's what your girlfriend is going to want to see. The one thing you're never going to do is split the difference and go to a PG-rated mm-hmm. sort of movie meant to pander to you. It's just very wrong-headed thinking mm-hmm. on terms of on an executive level. And and they you can find like I've, I think I've seen them like you go to the dollar store or a thrift store or something and you see like crappy old titan ae toy like it's they, they they made whole lines of merchandise for these things like this is going to be the next star wars and very silly it was just very silly so sorry don bluth nice try pal he did i guess he did have one more hit we mentioned it anastasia in 1997 mm-hmm. very successfully aped the form the broadway formula of the disney renaissance we're gonna have some songs and we're gonna have a princess and we're gonna have an evil magician it's just very yeah sort of unashamedly just stealing from Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin and that stuff. But it worked well enough, I guess, and people do have some fondness for it. Anyway, that's Don Bluth. Ben, having established the context and talked about our baggage, we'd be remiss if we didn't give our point of view on the secret of Nim. Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. New fantastic point of view. Good as a point of view, anyway. When was the last time you'd seen this movie before this watch? Who boy. When I was just a little kid. Okay, so this was your first time engaging with it as an adult person. It was. Age, weight, experience, and years. Mm-hmm. How'd you like it? I could hardly watch it this time. Really? I was very sad. Oh. I, I just had a hard time. We had just read the book. Mm-hmm. That, did, that, 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 that did not help. Oh, man, it sure didn't. And it's kind of the same trick with Don Blue's American Tale, which as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, yeah, I understand why Kid Ben liked this so much. Mm-hmm. He, he knows how to make this stuff work for a kid on an emotional level. Right. He doesn't have to tell a coherent story. He doesn't have to make the plot make sense. He doesn't really have to make anything make sense. He can just throw fairy dust over everything through animation, just mm-hmm. the power of his images. And give you the emotional beats in the... So he has a... There is an emotional logic to his movies. I'm not trying to say this is just trash or something. I I just mean it don't hold up as an adult. It's not a movie that you can watch as a kid and then love as an adult still or really enjoy as an adult. I don't think it is. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I had some patience for some of it. I think I was hoping that it would be better than it was. I find... As we already mentioned, Dom DeLuise to be pretty annoying. So I had not remembered. I, I don't think I was annoyed as a kid nearly as much. Right. I probably wasn't annoyed as a kid at all. As all. I mean, just like yeah. I wasn't annoyed by Tiger the Cat. But boy, right. uh, Jeremy did not do it for me this time. No, no. He was 
pretty obnoxious. And that was the thing that felt the most sort of anti-book. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. like, it's a fun, cuddly character. Now let's go to action. I, I, it was, you know, the animation was pretty. It, it has that mm-hmm. nice hand-drawn quality that you like mm-hmm. in an animation of this vintage. Mm-hmm. And you can tell money and time and skill yeah. went into it. Yeah. I think it might be my favorite of his films to look at. I mean, it'd be neck and neck with American Tale. Mm-hmm. But in some ways it feels, I, I'm sure American Tale was relatively less cheap in terms of its production. Yeah. But I would say, in some ways, American Tail feels more cheap just simply because it's so ambitious that it's occasionally biting off more than it can chew. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would say this usually feels like they're putting it all on the screen. They have something to prove, and there's a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff. But, yeah, the story leaves something to be desired, shall we say. It really does. They really just, just a lot of random magic stuff happens. Yeah, I mean, the stu- the places where he felt beholden to Disney were some of the worst places. The, adding the magic element and then not, like, did I miss something or did he just not explain it at all? There was zero explanation and there's no reason in the movie for you to understand that there would be any magic or what the amulet is or where it came from. They just make it, I mean, I, I read that it was, Bluth was like, hey, we need something to symbolize her inner strength. We really don't. O'Brien didn't. You know, we really don't. She's got plenty of inner strength there on the screen being shown in her actions. We really don't need an amulet. Yeah. And if we're going to have an amulet, we better establish that this world contains magic. Because it's just such a weird blend of like, these rats were made super intelligent by science. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. (laughs) Then... What, I mean, that's all that you get of that storyline, actually. The only other thing that you get is that the rats are kind of weird and that their leader uses magic. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, they don't feel any more intelligent than Mrs. Frisbee herself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could, probably the thing to have done if they wanted to go this direction was to make the reason that the rats were different, that they were magical. Like, just drop the entire escaping from the lab storyline if you have to have magic be like well they discovered an amulet and it made them all intelligent and mm-hmm. able to build a city and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. but yeah i mean o'brien was already on the edge of being kind of too bizarre with all the elements that he was combining but mm-hmm. he pulled it off but here they want to throw in more things without eliminating any of the things from o'brien right and yeah it's it doesn't work. And then the other place where they're beholden to Disney and it totally flops is the ballad. That song is... That ballad is amazingly bad. Interminable and horrible and poorly written and just... Yeah. Just bad. Yeah, I was... Yeah, I had not remembered the ballad. Yeah, I, it took me by surprise. It took me by unpleasant surprise. Yeah, I looked up the lyrics afterward. I was like, I have to know. Dream by night, wish by day. Love begins this way. <laughs> Loving starts when open hearts touch and stay. So I, I just, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> I mean, that's before Chat GTV, but it feels like that's what was going on in someone's oh, brain. Like, man. what are some generic, off the shelf ideas we can throw together? Some well, just cliches yeah, that don't I, even have interior logic. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. I don't know what else to say. I, <laughs> yeah. There's, I don't know. They, it, it, in some ways, it felt this time like the opposite of the book. The book is all about these slow, deliberate pleasures mm-hmm. of survival. And the movie is all about breakneck action mm-hmm. and craziness. And it has 
I mean, and another thing about the book is how unsentimental it is. Yeah. And this movie is so sentimental. Mm-hmm. Now, I, so, some of that I understand. As a screenwriter, you're like, I'm going to make a kid's movie. These kids are used to Disney. I've got to calibrate this material. I'm going to warm it up some. Yeah, sure. I, I don't, I, I'm fine with that. But he warmed it up a lot. Yeah. You've got anti-shrew. You've got, you, you just got stuff that feels over the top. Mm-hmm. Um. It did. It's hard to. I'm trying to remember back how I felt about this because there was cross pollination in my right. brain between the movie and the book. Because I I grew up enjoying both. Um, I imagine as a kid there had to probably be a little disappointment that the book didn't contain a few things like the sword fight. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You do feel in the book like ah, oh, I want a villain. I want a confrontation. Mm. But you don't get it. It's not that kind of book. You don't get it. Right. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I can understand them being like, well, we have this peripheral villainous characters from the book. Right. Let's bring him in and give him something to do. But then you actually have to give him something to do and write a character for him as opposed right. to what they did, which is just have him be antagonistic for a, a no reason, reason that's not particularly well explained. And Yeah, they, yeah. Yep, it's rough. They just they just gestured at a bunch of the most important plot and, th- and thematic elements of the book through a few lines of dialogue and then... There's a bad guy in a sword fight and yeah. a magic amulet. And there you go. And a ballad. Cool sword fight. It's a cool sword fight. It is funny to see a children's film where they have a sword fight with like blood spurts and yeah. with the guy dying because the the minion who he's mistreated <laughs> throws a dagger into his back. It's like such a... I know. I, I Yeah, as a kid, I was like, it was like a such a great climactic action scene. Mm-hmm. Just loved it. As yeah. a kid, all of these beats worked really well and they stuck with you. But as an adult, it's just like, this is arbitrary, mm-hmm. and it's not much fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe our listeners' mileage will vary. Maybe we're bringing too much of the book mm. and playing the comparison game, but... I don't think so. I just wanted stuff to track. I mean, yeah, in the book, the reason that she didn't know about the Rats of Nim feels plausible. Yeah. The reason her husband never told her. But in in the movie, it doesn't. Nothing really makes any sense. You've got Nicodemus already watching over her, mm-hmm. but then he's going to let her go to the Great Owl and not like send someone just to get her and yeah. help her. Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. And the, all the Great Owl is going to do is say go to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus already knows that she's going to the Great Owl. The Great Owl is just going to say go to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, why don't you just go tell someone that she can come visit you? Like, why do you? She doesn't need to do any of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I just feel that we have the same mind at work here as the one that did American Tale, which works in spite of itself. But even there, you're, as I've already said, you're like, really? Tammany Hall Grift? That's what you thought that kids were going to be interested in? And that goes together with this saga of this little boy. And you're doing the Jewish experience. But as my, it, it's just like, this guy does not think in regular linear storytelling terms. Mm-hmm. He's got some sense of, what where the emotions should go mm-hmm. although even that seems like it's not actually him being some kind of intuitive genius it's more just him having seen disney movies and knowing this is the part for the sad song and this uh-huh. is the part with this thing and now it's time for the comic relief and stuff like that but it, it's just like right yeah, he is just not very good at actually building a story engine that takes you from point a to point z and you know in a way that makes sense and draws you in yeah yeah i am um... The other thing, it, which we already talked about a little bit, 
We talked about the scene where the owl like crushes a spider that's about to eat Mrs. Frisbee. Mm-hmm. It is. He just, Mrs. Brisby, sorry, please. <laughs> Mrs. Brisby. <laughs> he loves the grotesque details. Yeah. He loves just extra skulls, please. Mm-hmm. Extra cobwebs, extra warts. Mm-hmm. Like if it's grotesque and a little uncomfortable, I like it and I will put it in the animation. I will put it in the environment. And I just, I don't think as a kid, I think as a kid, I probably was like, oh, this is fun. This is creepy. Mm -hmm. But as an adult, I'm like, I don't, this isn't really adding to my, like the great owl, instead of being in the book, what would you, you you wouldn't call him gross, whatever else you'd call him. But in the movie, it's like, he lives in a disgusting hole full of cobwebs and lots and lots of animal skeletons Mm -hmm. and giant spiders. He's kind of a gross creature. Yeah, it's a vulgar way of trying to get at what the book does, which is have him be this kind of transcendent or other, this creature that's beyond everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of a Jedi. He's just got that that's right that wisdom, but he's also got this sort of existential despair that goes beyond, like he can see his own end in a way that most of these creatures are have to be considered concerned with mm-hmm. the immediate right. <laughs> details of their lives. But right. the great owl gets to sit there and think and... Mm-hmm. It's actually quite a beautiful little scene of existential d- despair <laughs> with the great owl. It's got some poetry to it, as we yeah. I think we talked about on our yeah, sanity episode. But yeah, to reduce that to he's in a creepy environment with skulls. Uh, it just seems too bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can, again, you kind of have to wonder, like, what is it that Don Bluth actually wants to do? What would make him happy if he was just making the movie the way that he wanted to make? I mm-hmm. wonder what it would be. I'm not sure that we really even know the answer because he's always caught in between the commercial interests of making these kinds of movies and mm-hmm. what seems to. I mean, obviously he has he's drawn to the dark and the grotesque in some ways, yeah, but not in a way that he ever feels like he can just go for it and give you like a Henry Selleck doing Nightmare Before Christmas kind of thing. In other words, there are people that have made a good living just doing that. You don't have to love him. You don't have to hate him. But there are people that just do that. But he's not one of them. And maybe there just wasn't a market for it at the time. Yeah. And Henry Selleck's brand of grotesque is actually much more straightforward. Yes, it is. Like you you know where you're at. and what You know you're, where you're at. He's yeah. like, I were in a grotesque world. You're going to see grotesque things. But it's all going to be kind of cheeky, kind of witty, or at least attempting to be. It's not really going to I mean, actually... I don't know that Henry Selleck is... Henry Selleck does do some stuff from the id, mm-hmm. but he's He still, does more stuff from the Halloween spirit store yeah, or something. Like, that's right. Ooh, it's a spooky clown. Yeah, it's like that kind of stuff. That's right. I think the closest he comes to the id is in that that guy that's made out of bugs. You remember that guy? Yeah, yeah. The, the oogie boogie the, uh, bad guy? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 that's pretty grotesque in its way. But Coraline yeah. is pretty good, but that's Neil Gaiman's id. Yeah, Coraline. But it feels like a self-consistent world. Like when you buy a ticket for Coraline, you know about what you're going to get. Say, Obviously the same thing mm-hmm. for Nightmare Before Christmas. I mean, Nightmare Before Christmas has become its own brand because people want to feel that way and want to dress that way and want to think that way, you know. And so they may, but you pay for Secret of Nim. It's like, is the person that likes that soppy ballad the same person that's going to like the giant tarantula being squashed into green goo and is that the same person that's gonna like a sword fight and is that the same person mm-hmm. that's gonna like a magical amulet it's it's just like it's weird it's all this different stuff it's 
It's really interesting. I think it might actually be instructive for some of our listeners if they're interested in storytelling to just watch this and compare it to their favorite Disney movie or their favorite children's film and think about why it doesn't work. Because it's like any given scene you could say is just fine. I mean, the song's bad. Yeah. And there are things we've been pointing out, like the spider mm-hmm. that just feels wildly out of place. Mm-hmm. But but you could imagine a movie where someone has to go, where a mouse has to go through a creepy tree trunk full mm-hmm. of skulls and bugs, mm-hmm. where it would be a great scene. Yeah, that's an interesting point. There, there are, the individual beats are mostly fine. Mm-hmm. It's well animated. It's well voiced with the exception of Dom DeLuise, I would say. Yeah. For the most part. I mean, they're not, it's just not well conceived <laughs> on a big picture level. Mm-hmm. It's like he didn't actually, you don't, one, you, I'm, I hate it when people criticize things for not following the source material to the letter. You know, when somebody's mad that Lord of the mm-hmm. Rings doesn't go to Tom Bombadil or have the scouring of the Shire. It's like, that is not the right reason to be mad at Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Of course they couldn't spend the time to go to Tom Bombadil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. It'd be nice if this was a hbo series where we could just adapt it chapter by chapter but that's not what they were doing and when you buy your ticket it's unfair to expect them to do that but it is Mm -hmm. fair to expect them to have read and absorbed the book and to feel like you find them liking and wanting to evoke the spirit of the book and if you want to criticize if you want to love lord of the rings you can say it does that if you want to criticize it you can argue that it doesn't Mm -hmm. um but what you don't find here is that it does not feel like he actually found something that really spoke to him in the Richard O'Brien book, it feels more like he just thought, oh, this is a good template for me to do hmm. a kind of Disney pastiche or something like this. Yeah, but I don't think he knew that. Yeah. I don't think, it's not like I feel like he has any commentary on Robert C. O'Brien. It was more like, this is just the way that he thinks about adapting something. And if he adapts it so far that it becomes almost anti what he had adapted, mm-hmm. he's, not, he's not really aware that of what he's done. Yeah, he, he doesn't. Realize it. Yeah, exactly. He's just like, but if you can't point to something like, I loved that book. And so this is why I made the movie because I wanted to capture, I knew I couldn't do everything. I knew we were going to have to change this. I knew we had to introduce magic, but I just loved the resourcefulness and thoughtfulness and courage of Mrs. Frisbee slash Brisbee. Like, Mm -hmm. like if you could see that thing Mm -hmm. and there's not that one thing where Mm -hmm. he just loved it. It's also true that he gives short shrift to all the stuff that I loved the most in the book. Like mm-hmm. they they reduce the flashback of the rats escaping. I know to nothing. Th- yeah, less than a minute maybe. Or, but but you're gonna have like no less than three needles going into three rats, which right. is incredibly grotesque. And I think I don't like I that makes me uncomfortable for a kids mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Like that's a pretty pointed thing to do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to inject a little. No. Uh, Science. <laughs> Science. This movie. Yeah. Man, I wish we had more good things to say about this movie because. Oh, yeah. Already... Such fond memories of it as a kid. Yeah. it's. I was looking forward to revisiting it and I was thinking it might be fun to introduce our audience to it. And I hate it when it happens that like a Gunga Din was kind of this way. I'm sure there have been others where it's like, yeah, we're going to go back to this thing that's really great. And then it's like our audience probably wouldn't have even watched that if it wasn't for us. And now they've wasted their time. So. Sorry, audience. Maybe you liked it better than we did. Hey, yeah. What are positive things we can say about Secret of Nim? We said the animation's really pretty. Animation's pretty. The score, actually, apart from the ballad, is quite good. Yeah, you can't go wrong with... Jerry Goldsmith. JG, yeah. Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. I like the voice work pretty well. It's fine. Yeah. It's... I don't know that I'm like over the moon about it. No, I mean, you just, it's hard to judge because you don't love the, any of the characters or... 
No, I mean, sorry to go back to a criticism, but I, I, I'm a big fan of the Mrs. Frisbee from the books yes. and her quiet, not sentimental. But this Mrs. Frisbee is a lot more of a scaredy mouse and much more just sentimental, like, oh, I love you, Jeremy. Oh, I just like, and I, again, I have some sympathy for that because you're making a kid's movie and you want the character to have some warmth. Mm-hmm. I, I, I get it, but it's just pushed, she's pushed pretty far from what she, uh, her characterization in the book. Hey, look, if you want to discard the book, that's fine. You better have something really entertaining and good to put, yeah. in, put in its place. Yeah. If you just want the title and the concept and then you've got your own story to tell, I could roll with that. The book mm-hmm. still exists, but yeah. Give me something. Give me something. I mean, Jenner has a cool sounding voice, but it's like the characters and nothing. So mm-hmm. like, like, I guess he thinks they should steal from the, like I don't know. They even say why Jenner's the bad guy, besides that he sounds and looks like a bad guy. And no, no, I don't remember that they do. And Nicodemus is like this super decrepit old sage kind of character who's designed to evoke the owl. Like they're two sides of the same coin, kind of. I mean, it's, it's really it's, weird. It's just I'm sure that all made sense in Don Blue's brain, or I hope it made sense in someone's brain. But <sighs> sorry, Secret of Nim. Yep. I'm trying to think if there's anything else positive I could say. I mean, Don Bluth's good at action. I like the frantic nature of like the cat trying to attack them. I mean, it's not as good mm-hmm. as similar material in the book, but it's, uh, I like how it's the same thing that I like about the cat attack at the beginning of the five movie. I just like how ferocious he makes that stuff or shark, sharp tooth and uh, mm-hmm. for time. Uh, sword fight's good. Gorsh. There's got to be at least one other positive thing we can say here. It's short. <laughs> it is short. Yeah, it's short. Well under the 90-minute mark. Uh, I'm not sure what else to say. Oh, uh, man. Well, how many scientifically exploited rats out of 40 <laughs> would you give to this movie? Oh, I don't, I'm not sure how to feel about that. I, maybe I give it 15. Yeah, I was going to give it 10. Like it's, I was thinking of 10, and then I was like, maybe I'm just in a bad mood. I'm not in a bad mood, though. No, it's, uh, yeah. Maybe I should just give it 10. I should just give it 10 and say that if I were a kid, I would give it like 35. My kid self gave it 35 out of 40 rats. Yeah, I could see a kid really enjoying this. I could also see this movie just like going under and or over a modern kid's head. The animation won't be what they're used to necessarily. No, 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 no. Grown up on any kind of Pixar or anything. They might just be like, huh? This is slightly more sober and less jokey and self-aware than we're used to, but it's also not actually evoking like a real fairy tale kind of. Right. Yeah. I don't know what this would do for a modern kid raised on Pixar. That's a different kettle of fish. I was raised on Disney. Yeah. Star Wars, whatever. Yeah. I was raised on bologna sandwiches and 2% milk. Bunch of bologna. It was a bunch of bologna. Kind of like Secret of Nim. It's kind of like Secret of Nim. Well... Sorry, Secret of Nim. Sorry, Secret of Nim. I say, if you're interested in some Nimology, then uh, just go read the book. Yeah, it's pretty great. And if someone who actually had some talent wanted to write some more books, I'd be all for it. I think this is a cool universe that I do actually wish there was more. Yeah, me too. Like if they wanted to make a modern, like if Netflix decides they're going to fund a new series or something like that, I I would be intrigued. I would love for somebody to. Hmm. I know, I know there have been various things batted around over the years in terms of. Yeah, what did we talk about when we did the what? book? Is there any? Well, there are the two sequel sequel books that his daughter wrote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's no there's no show adaptation. I guess there's Watership Down. There isn't one. I think they have talked about it. 
I think maybe even they've announced it before, but nothing's ever actually come out. Huh. So. All right. Sorry, Secret of Nim. You have a combined or an average 13 scientifically modified rats out of 40. <sighs> All right. People, or Ben, if people want to release the scientifically modified rat of money into the maze of this podcast, how do they do that? <laughs> Very easily, Nathan. They go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies, and they can release that scientifically modified rat into the maze. Give us some cash injections. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'm sure you're glad you listened all the way through for that. Until next time, he's never prepared, folks. Dream by night and wish by day. <laughs> Love begins this way. Love begins this way.